uh, tonight, um, listen, I, I'm for real, I'm going to throw at you some tough stuff. This has been uh, sort of bothering me all day. I've been trying to squirm out of this stuff. Um, but I'm just really going to need you all to put on some big girl pants and some big boy pants tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus and forgiveness, but, but to do that, I'm also going to talk about some political stuff um, that's going on right now. And I'm going to share with you a story of sexual abuse. And I know it's like the second week of school. Uh, whoa. Anyway, welcome to the house. Um, I hope you all stick with me. Um, listen, we have a very, very tough time in our culture. Um, uh, sitting through things that are uncomfortable for us. Uh, and we also have a really, really tough time in our culture staying in dialogue with anybody that we disagree with for a second. Um, and, and neither of those things are, are admirable or lovely, friends. Uh, so I want, I want you to pray with me that God leads us in a better way of being present with each other tonight. Um, and that he leads us in truth and peace and love in the midst of uh, some hard content. All right, let's pray. Um, Father, send your spirit, um, your ruach, your breath, your wind through this room to cool us down. Um, and then send your spirit too um, to waken up and, and, and inflame our hearts and our minds. That we might respond to your word. May, the, may the, the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts and minds be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so the scripture we're looking at tonight comes from the gospel of Jesus according to Mark. It's the second book uh, in the New Testament, this library that we call the Bible. Uh, we're two chapters in, uh, so I encourage you to find it digitally or, or, or look it up or write it down, whatever you need to do. Become familiar with the Bible. Uh, and you're welcome to... to I invite you to read through Mark um, with us this semester as we go through the gospel, um, this gospel account. Uh, so Jesus had just been traveling all around Galilee. We're like one, we just finished, we didn't even finish all the chapters. I'm being super selective so we don't spend four years going through the gospel, uh, this gospel account. But, uh, but Jesus had been traveling all around this region of Galilee. He'd left his, uh, what had become his hometown and he's going on a, sort of this circuit preaching and teaching all these different places. He said that's why he's come is, is to preach and to teach these things. Uh, other gospel accounts uh, detail some of the stories that, that are left out for us in, in this one. Um, but, but remember, he, he's talking about the fact that his kingdom is at hand, that it's so close you can touch it. He'd been traveling around these places preaching and healing and casting out demons, and by the time he returns to his hometown, which is where this story picks up at the beginning of chapter 2, his hometown's Capernaum now. He had moved at some point from Nazareth to Capernaum. The news was out about the stuff he'd been teaching. We think that he was probably hanging out in Peter's house. This guy was a fisherman that he asked to follow him. It became one of his best friends. And a bunch of people from the town had come over and gathered around. There's so many people, there's a crowd at the door. And they're gathered there to hear him teach, not to heal or perform miracles. That's actually what's emphasized over and over again in the accounts of Jesus' life. People who come for healings and, and sort of cast their life upon him for his power to change them, they're actually exceptions to the rule in the stories. The crowds are just sort of sitting around comfortably, you know, listening. And then there's this one person or this couple of people who fight their way in somewhere, who are ducking down below a crowd, who are, who are sitting up in a tree. These aren't, these are, uh, they, they, there's, there's a certain core group of people in this text, these four guys and this paralytic who are coming to Jesus, and they stand out in the story for one of the main reasons they stand out is because they're actually coming to Jesus for their lives to change, particularly for the life of their friend, this one guy to change. And so these four men come carrying their friend on a mat because he's paralyzed, and they want Jesus to heal him. And they can't get in because the crowd is slammed in around the door and all down the hall. 
One Bible commentator points this out, that the single most common attribute of the crowds in this particular gospel account is that they obstruct access to Jesus. The single most common attribute of crowds in this account is that they obstruct access to Jesus. That being part of a crowd and being a disciple of Jesus are not necessarily the same thing, friends. Let me say that again. Being part of the crowd around Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus are not necessarily the same thing. The crowds in this story make access to Jesus more difficult. That might be true for some of us in a place like this even. So these men take the stairs up to the roof, because uh, in that time there, were, there would have been staircases up to the roof for a variety of reasons, and they start digging through the muddy clay roof to lower this friend of theirs down because they can't get in because of the crowds. And you can imagine sort of being inside that stuffy room when it's really hot because you're in, in a stuffy room, it's really hot. Uh, and, and, but at this point, like, uh, some of them start to feel a little bit of dust and debris kind of come down, and they look up and they start to see uh, cr- crumbs and, and, and flakes of mud and, and this thatch roof kind of breaking down in clumps and then hands come through and then can you imagine probably because think of how big this hole would need to be these guys are probably six feet by three feet probably at least if you got some guy on a stretcher so you got to imagine that, that they're probably like just trying to kick this ground around this and you can imagine maybe jesus sort of taking everybody back and making room for these people while this debris is falling down and the text tells us that jesus when this guy gets down there and he looks at this guy laying on this mat, that he sees their faith, the faith of the friends. This is the first time that the word shows up in this gospel account. And note the faith, the first time faith shows up as, as, a, as a word. Note that Jesus doesn't call their feelings or their theological thoughts faith. What does it mean for somebody to have faith in Jesus? Well, in this instance, he doesn't call their feelings or their theological thoughts Faith. He calls their actions of bringing their friend to him faith. It might be worth thinking on. Furthermore, how strange is it to us in all of our emphasis on individuality and personal faith in our culture that Jesus responds to this man in light of his friends? That's worth thinking on. Jesus sees the faith of these friends, and he decides to move toward this man. Oh, my goodness. And if that's not surprising enough for us because of our cultural tilt, what's really surprising to them and would be surprising for us if we could get it is he doesn't say, because of your friends, you're healed. You can walk again. He doesn't say that. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, maybe you've heard a lot about Jesus and the fact that he forgives sins seems like a normal Tuesday to you, maybe, okay? But this is crazy in that room. The guy didn't even come for that. He came to have his legs work again. And everyone starts muttering, and the religious leaders in the room are mad because Jesus is making himself out to be God, they're pretty sure. You can see that, right? Like, like I mean, it's one thing for me to say, like I can stand up here as a pastor or something, I can say, hey, God forgives sins, and, you, and, and that's, that's bold. Or God forgives you, it's even bolder because now it's moving personally toward you. And that's kind of crazy. You might say, well, well, how do you know? It's exactly like crazy. You might say, how do you know? That's kind of bold. But do you see how that's different than if I just say, you are forgiven. I don't say God forgives, I just say, you're forgiven. Or I tell you, you're forgiven. I don't mention God, I just say it as if my words have that kind of power. You see how crazy that is? As if whatever I say is truth. Who are you to forgive someone's sins or declare that someone is forgiven? 
And the religious leaders around Jesus knew that in that moment, that he was equating himself with God. And knowing what they're thinking and muttering while that paralyzed man is laying on the ground in front of everyone, and his friends are on the roof sort of looking in from this giant hole in the ceiling, with debris laying all around, Jesus actually points out the religious leaders in this crowded living room now all squished up against the sides of the walls. And he says, he, he points to them and he says, now which, of you, which is easier, friends? Saying your sins are forgiven or saying stand up, pick up your mat and walk to a paralyzed man? Which is easier? Which is a crazy rhetorical question. I don't even know. I, I think I know the right answer. But, but it's kind of like a, a weird one to try to figure out how to nail down because which one do we really believe is more difficult? And then he says to those people, now, now notice this, this scene, this sort of movement in him. He says to them, they don't even answer the question. He says, which is easier? And he says, so that you know that I have the authority, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He doesn't finish his sentence. He turns to the man on the ground. And he says, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And at his word... Life riddles through the paralytic spine, and it fills his legs, and he jumps up, he grabs his mat, walks through the crowd, out the front door. The text actually makes a point to say that he walked before them all. Some of your texts will say he pushed through a crowd. Some will say he walked before their face, as if he's an advertisement to the power of Jesus before every single one of them. And you might also notice that Jesus is telling us here that one of the main reasons that he does and did the miracles that he did is to demonstrate not just that he can make a paralyzed person walk and the blind see, but that he could do greater things, like forgive his sins. And I, I know, I, I actually, I suspect, I don't, I don't know many of you, but uh, I know a lot of you, and I know me, and uh, that's not a shocking statement to many of us, because we've been Christianized in some culture. I don't know what you believe exactly, but you've been around maybe some lingo that talks about Jesus forgiving sins, and we just, I think, maybe haven't looked squarely in the face of sin. Uh, so, so let me tell you a story. At 18 years old, as a freshman in college, uh, I was driving 45 minutes every single Sunday morning for a few months to go to a Sunday school class that my grandfather was leading. He used to call himself a Baptocostal. Uh, if you don't know what that means, I didn't either. Um, but he always would say it with like a smile and a wink, and so I didn't want to question it. I was like, yeah, that's great, you know. Uh, uh, he, he was a golf pro. He was a real estate agent, so always on the road, always golfing with people. It was, it was really uh, fascinating life to look, look at. He was always reading the Bible, watching Seattle sports, or eating. Um, he usually eat ice cream, popcorn, or radishes, not at the same time, but those were his three favorite things. Um, always had a mustache, this big, bushy, white mustache, uh, which he hated. But my grandmother loved, right? And so my grandfather wanted to shave it all off, but she hated it because she'd get like that prickly stuff against her cheeks when he kissed her. Um, and she hated the full beard, which he also would like because she thought it looked kind of messy. Um, so he always had this little mustache that he didn't like. Uh, he always dressed well. Because my grandmother picked out all of his clothes, and he wore whatever she commanded. Um, I remember his, his suit shoulders always had a little dandruff on them. Um, always. Uh, and he always, I mean, always had candy in his pocket. Um, butter rum lifesavers were my favorite, uh, and they are to this day a little bit of heaven on earth for me. Okay, uh, My wife puts them in my stocking every single year. Uh, I remember sitting in church next to my grandfather, watching out of the corner of my eye uh, how he, like, armed with, you know, highlighters and, and, and church bulletins, uh, how he would sort of take notes uh, um, on these bulletins and mark up his Bible. And, and, and I was always wondering, like, how does he know what to write? Like, how does he know which statements are more important than others? Like, how does he know what to highlight here? How does he know his way around these texts? I was so curious. But he didn't live long enough for me to get to ask him so many questions that I still have burning in me. If we ever met outside a church, it was always at a diner. 
Uh, and diners still seem to me to be one of the most ideal places to talk about Jesus. Um, in our town, I recommend Wally's, which is just down the street uh, to the right. Um, order their breakfast special. It's $4.69 before 11 o'clock. Uh, and talk with God about someone. It'll change your life. Um, but so anyway, I was 18, and for a variety of reasons, which are another story, um, I had decided to take this whole Jesus thing pretty seriously. And by that, I don't mean I had become a Christian or I was like, I'm going to follow Jesus or anything. I, I just decided that I really wanted to figure out, kind of for good, what I thought about this man, Jesus, that Christians talked about all the time. And so I made this decision to come to some conclusion, as if I had some control over it or something. I don't know. God honors prayers, I suppose. But uh, I, su- I suppose. Um, but, uh, but I made this sort of decision that I was going to sort of make sure one of the goals I had in college was to really sort out what I believed about God. So I had so I'd made this decision, and though neither of my parents uh, were following Jesus, um, yeah, no family expression of mine that I knew of was following Jesus, uh, and I had very little experience in the church or Christian community, um, my mom's parents, my maternal grandparents, were very, very outspoken Christians, Baptocostals. And so when I decided I was going to figure out some of this stuff, I decided I'd spend some time with my grandfather. So I drove weekly at my freshman year of college to this Sunday school class that he led in his church. I'd call him a few times a week with questions about faith, Bible, God, and pretty quickly this man had become one of the major voices in my life as I was sorting out what I believed about God, what I believed about me, what I believed about you. And right about this time, um, a a bombshell was kind of dropped on me. Uh, My mom and I were sitting in a car somewhere one night, and she said she needed to tell me something. Uh, And for the next couple of hours, um, she shared with me that her father— uh, had sexually abused all of his daughters. All f- uh, four daughters and a boy, and the boy um, wasn't sexually abused. All of his daughters were. And we talked at length about what that meant, my mom and I in this car. Uh, she shared story after story. Uh, I asked questions. We both cried. Uh, we were both angry. At one point I asked her why she was telling me now and why she hadn't told me before. Looking back, I imagine that she felt um, a degree of unearned shame about what she'd experienced in her life. And that's part of probably why it took her so long to tell me, but I was 18 and I did not have the wherewithal to think that. Um, I, I, just, I don't know, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking that then. But uh, what she did say uh, was that my grandfather had just that month, that month, personally and in writing apologized and asked for forgiveness from each of his daughters. Like he set up meetings to meet with them for lunch or dinner or coffee. He actually flew to a couple of them in different parts of the United States to set up a time to meet with them and ask for forgiveness from these women whose innocence he had ravaged and whose life he had broken. And then the other reason she waited to tell me uh, is she believed that he, um, he had changed. And she wanted me to be able to know him and was worried that I would reject him if I knew As some of you can imagine, maybe feel right now, the the tailspin of confusion uh, and thoughts which came with this knowledge. And my mom's reasons. It made some, honestly, it made sense of some of my experience. Like I was able to look back and and like pieces kind of slid into place. Certain uh, kinds of sin patterns and brokenness and and, and, and a lack of trust. And uh, my mom has always had a bunch of uh, skepticism about church authority. That made sense. Um, Other things too. Um, but I'd also been spending like all this time with this dude who was an elder in this church 
okay, and leading these Bible studies, and I was trying to reconcile what I knew about this guy today with what he had done 30 years prior, which, by the way, he was an elder in a church then, too. Lord have mercy. So I didn't know what to do. By the time he died, just a couple years later, uh, I never spoke with him directly about it. I was too afraid. It was too scary to bring up. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if I'd get mad. I didn't know if it would break him. I think I was afraid um, that he wouldn't give an answer that's satisfying to me. Um, I wish I had the courage to do that, though. I didn't stop spending time with him, although I spent less time with him from that point on. I still went off and on to that Sunday school class. I was still trying to figure things out. But, but now I was, like, looking for signs to see if this guy that I knew is the same man he used to be. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't just going anymore because my grandfather was rad, uh, and he answered really cool questions and, like, knew everything in the Bible. Um, I was now, there was still stuff to learn, I, I think, but I, it was all mixed in me. I was partly going, like, for espionage now, trying to figure out what I believed about God's power and other things. Anyway, one Sunday morning in the Sunday school class, uh, as I'm sort of sitting in my skepticism, thicken it, trying to figure out if I'm on the way out of all of this crap. And I was, uh, I was uh, one of the older men in the class. I mean, I was uh, 30 years younger than anybody, so all of them were older men, um, and, and women too. But, uh, but, but anyway, one of them asked if we could lay hands on him and pray. And this had never happened before. I'd been going for months, and, and nobody had ever asked for that before. Um, mostly it was like a, a whiteboard and very linear sort of rational thinking and these sorts of things. Well, anyway, I didn't know what laying hands on people meant, so I just kind of did what everybody else did. We laid hands on this guy. We started praying that this guy's back would be healed. Since I had known him, and according to the testimony of people in this church, for decades, this guy had either been on crutches in a wheelchair his whole life. He had messed up his back and had chronic pain that made it almost impossible for him to walk. And while we were praying, in the middle of, in the middle of praying, We'd, we'd feel, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you, we felt something, everybody. And he started weeping and cut off our prayer and he said, I'm healed, I'm healed. In the middle of, in the middle of praying. By the way, my grandfather's hand was on him too. And this dude just like stood up, we didn't say amen or anything, he just stood up, straight up, stretched, and then somewhere around 60 years old, he did like this miserable looking cartwheel right in the middle of our, uh, our Sunday school class. Like, I mean, he tried to, you know, it was all funny looking, but, um, but I mean, it was like, like, it was, it was crazy for me, but in my, you know, in my skepticism and in and, and all sorts of ways, I didn't know what I believed, all this, and, and on top of the stuff with my grandfather, uh, I'm looking at everybody else's face, you know, to see if there's like, I'm looking at some, is there some hidden, ca cam hidden cameras were like a thing before iPhones, I guess, I don't know, but uh, was there like a hidden camera somewhere, was this a joke, do you guys believe this stuff, uh, is this a, a plant, like, has he been, uh, has he been working for like decades to like pull this thing out, you know, uh, if you've seen, uh, like, The Prestige or something, you know, uh, anyway, um, it's one of the best movies ever made, uh, in any case, I'm really skeptical, but this miracle happened, like, right in front of me, and, and it was absolutely nuts, his wife is crying, everybody's praising God, everybody's in awe, I mean, we never did it again for as long as I went to class, like, it wasn't like the next week, it was like, hey, since we know that God can do miraculous healings, everybody start praying, I got allergies, you know, I, uh, my toe hurts sometimes, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, I, my, I'm nearsighted. Uh, you know, we, we didn't start like walking in and everybody started. I, that was just like a thing that happened. Then we picked up and moved on with the rest of our stuff. He just walked to class the next week, sat down and got up and walked out. And it was, it was the, the, like, the, like the banality of it was crazy to me. The mundaneness of it. The fact that this just happened and everybody just moves on. I was like, what? It was really, really crazy. We just prayed. He was miraculously healed. That was it. And I was in the middle of asking a pretty big question. Like, 
Could this man actually change? Like, could God actually forgive sins? Potentially even a tougher question, which I don't have too much time to address tonight, um, is do I even want God to? In the middle of all of those questions, this miraculous healing really messed with me. Because it, it, didn't, it didn't convince me to follow Jesus, by the way. Like, I didn't sort of see a miraculous healing and then go, well, I'll follow Jesus. Like, uh, some, of, some of us, I hear that narrative sometimes. Like, if I saw a miracle, I, that's just not true. Uh, it doesn't happen for most people. Um, uh, but, but it did, I, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't deny it. It just, it just kept me in the game maybe a bit longer. I couldn't deny that some power was mysteriously present in the world, and it happened in the name of Jesus. But the effect of it wore off pretty quickly. I mean, like, I remember it, but I don't remember, like, the next couple of days thinking anything's possible or something. And for any of you who have, have, have experienced sort of unquestionable miracles, you might know some of what that's like. Because as crazy as it is to see someone miraculously healed, that's actually not the deep stuff that goes on in us, question-wise. Like, the harder stuff for us to believe is that sins can be forgiven or that people can change. That's the hardest stuff to believe. And it's the stuff that we can't prove, right? Like, we just have to trust that. Like, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Prove it. And so God demonstrates himself in, his, like in this story through, through healing a man, uh, making him walk, who was paralyzed, or, or in the Sunday school class for me, uh, healing some guy's, you know, 30-year-old back problem in such a way that he doesn't need a wheelchair or crutches again until later, because, uh, newsflash, we all die. Uh, but, uh, uh, so, so, but, but for a while, there's this, cra- this crazy thing happened that changed his life, and it was, it was, it was you know, his mind uh, blowing for me. But, but throughout history, God demonstrates himself in different ways through his church in ways that help us trust deeper promises. It's one of the reasons why sins of the church are so freaking dangerous, because they cause us to doubt, too, the power and willingness of God to forgive us. Do you see that? This question has been stirred up a lot recently, if you've been paying attention to the news. The scandals in the church around the world stir up questions in us that often we don't even know how to vocalize. If these evils can happen within the church and within church leadership, which we can see, then how can we trust a God that God can forgive us, which is hard for us to see and trust? And then it came up surprisingly, I want to show you something in a second. It came up surprisingly for me in, in this interview the other day I was watching on CNN. Now look, I, I, um, I want to show you this video. Um, it's very politically charged. Uh, and I hope some of you have enough intellectual, I hope all of you, not some of you, I hope all of you have enough intellectual integrity that you can sift through political stuff to see what we're getting at tonight. Y'all, most of you are college students anyway. Um, but you're all called, even if you're not, I, you guys, don't, I mean, you live in an era where we actually have a phrase called fake news. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird. Uh, uh, but, but sift through some of the political stuff, all right? Like, I'm not interested in getting into too much political diatribe tonight. Um, but this is an interview with Anderson Cooper of CNN and Cornell West, um, who's a very well-respected Harvard professor. And I want you to notice two things as you watch this, this, this brief interview. First, I want you to notice how the gospel of Jesus Christ compels Dr. West to hold out hope for change and forgiveness. This question of, can God really change and forgive? I want you to watch how much that, that he's, like, he refuses to cross this line where he denies that possibility. Like, it's, it's radically affected him even against someone that he considers an enemy of his. And second, how hard it is for Anderson Cooper to believe that people can change. Because I see in Anderson Cooper this, this doubt that lingers in all of us, and it's, it's actually quite refreshing for me to see it surprise him. So I want you to pay attention to Anderson Cooper's face. Because about halfway through this, this, this brief little interview, you can see this demeanor change, and somehow Dr. West gets behind his defenses, and this question gets stirred up in him. Now listen, 
you need to be big boys and big girls, okay? Uh, uh, just, we, are, we don't like sitting in rooms where we disagree with stuff, and we don't like sitting in rooms where we're uncomfortable. Uh, I believe in you. All right, Keely, will you show this video real quick? of Harvard and Princeton, author of numerous books, including Race Matters, Black Prophetic Fire, and The Radical King. So, Dr. West, I want to get your reaction to, to the former ambassador to South Afri Africa, Patrick Gaspard. He tweeted that President Trump was, quote, attacking South Africa with the disproven racial myth of large-scale killings of farmers. This man has never visited the continent, has no discernible Africa policy. I'm wondering if you agree with that. You know, Brother Anderson, there's a wonderful line in the T.S. Eliot poem that says we're distracted by distractions. It's fairly clear that he's in a panic mood. It's fairly clear that he's lying again. I've re re read recently he's told 4,229 lies in 558 days, so we shouldn't be surprised. The important thing is, is that he's at a moment in these last days where it looks like Brother Donald Trump, he's the gangster, racist, misogynist. He's a brother because he's made in the image of God. He's a brother because he could change. He's not a devil, but he's a human being who chooses devilish action. He's a human being who chooses to be demonic. He's reaching the end. He's meeting his match with Brother Mueller. And when Mueller lays bare and discloses the facts, Donald Trump will not just be shaking in his boots, but will be saying goodbye. But he expresses something deep in American culture that's very important to keep in mind from a people who've been on intimate terms of catastrophe and keep track of gangsters. He's not all by himself. He's not isolated. He reflects something in the culture. He's got followers. So even after Donald Trump, we've got to come to terms with what produced him. Corporate elite still running, running amok. Wall Street still breaking records. Stock market breaking records. Wealth inequality still increasing. Racial divide still deep. The homophobia and the patriarchy still running amok. So it's not just getting Donald Trump out of the way, but he's on his way out, it seems to me. It's, and I think we have to keep track of his humanity as he goes out. It's interesting you talk about this as a distraction, which is obviously a technique he's, he's used before. Um, but, I mean, I, what do you think it says that really the first time the president has decided to comment on issues in Africa affect, I mean, Africa is an extraordinary continent with many different countries in it, uh, the, you know, other than that one tweet about, tweet about meeting with African leaders, in which I think he welcomed leaders from a country that doesn't exist, he chooses to offer focus on a small population of white people in South Africa. I mean, you know, he's in a, over his head, though. He, he, uh, he's got a white supremacist tilt. There's no doubt about it. I wish he'd say something about Uganda, what's going on right now with the arrest of opposition leaders by the U.S. ally. I wish he'd say something about Yemen. With the Saudi attack on those precious people, especially women and children, U.S. supported Saudi forces doing that. So he's in over his head. I don't think we ought to take it too seriously because he's at this point simply just throwing whatever he can and hopes that it sticks and tries to get us away from the fact that he is going under. And I think in many ways you think of the, uh, the, the tears of, of Fred and Marianne, his mother and father. This is the son that we produced. Look at the levels of mendacity and criminality. But as a human being, he can still change. I'm not making a program on it, but I'm saying that because I don't want us to be self-righteous in our, in our criticism. I think that even after Trump, we're going to have to be just as 
righteously uh, uh, outraged and full of indignation in terms of the wealth inequality, in terms of the prison situation, in terms of the educational inequalities, in terms of the way women are treated, gays, lesbians, trans, and especially black and brown folk. You because really once Trump leaves, the racism doesn't leave. You really believe people racism can change? Racism doesn't leave, my brother. Oh, absolutely. My God. I know you can be better. I know I can be better. That, that, not I would like to be better. I don't know if I can Gergen be better. And Woodward and rather, it's hard to think of a better panel than that, but everybody can be better, you see. And I'm, 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 not, I'm a Christian not because I'm naive. I'm a Christian because I believe that we all have the capacity, given our wretchedness, to be better. And that's true for everybody, right wing, left wing, center, liberal, across the board. But we have to be honest and candid about our foes. Now, Donald Trump is my foe. There's no doubt about that. And we swing at each other. But even still, uh, even as a gangster that he chooses to be, I know that I got some gangster in me and I've got to try to control it. So uh, I, 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 this is maybe getting off topic, but so in your belief is the key to change ex to acknowledging one's wretchedness as in the word that you used? The key to change is to have the courage to criticize, the courage to hope, and the courage to love, and to bind with others to be forces of good before the worms get your body. That's the history of the species at its best. The, but the dominant history of the species is hatred, envy, resentment, domination, oppression. That's what's so beautiful about democracy. That's what's so beautiful about love and justice, what love looks like in public, just like tenderness, and what love feels like in private. That tenderness, that love and democracy is an interruption from the dark and vicious history that so many of all of us have to wrestle with in the depth of our soul. That's what it is to be human. And let's just be honest about it. All of us stand in need of transformation. We used to say in my church, if the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. <laughs> How much heaven you're leaving behind? Yeah. Donald Trump. Not leaving too much heaven behind, a whole lot of hell right now. Oh, indeed, that's why he's got to go, and he will go. Uh, Dr. West, uh, it's always an education. I appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much, my brother. You stay strong now, man. All right, you too. Thank you. So I was, I was a little bit nervous to turn around and see if half of you have left or not. Um, look, if you want to ask me about politics stuff, we can talk later. That, that's, that is not fundamentally about politics for me. Uh, did you watch... Anderson Cooper's face throughout this. At one point, uh, Dr. West makes this suggestion that our president can change. Whether you think he ought to change or not is, is, is irrelevant to me um, for this conversation. That, that Dr. West thinks he ought to change uh, and makes a comment that he can change. And it was like this, I've watched that video now a handful of times. It's like a delayed reaction from Anderson Cooper. A, a, a seconds later, he goes, you can see him almost shake his head for a minute, and he, he, he starts to talk to interrupt him. It's a bad interview technique because it caught him off guard. And then he finishes his question while Dr. West is talking over him, and he almost can't even hear it because Dr. West is still talking. And then Dr. West realizes what he had asked and comes back. And Anderson Cooper said, do you really think people can change? Do you really think people can change? And if you listen just after that, again, Dr. West was talking over him. He said... I don't know if I can be better. This is a very well-educated, articulate, thoughtful man, regardless of what you think about his politics. And this basic gut-level question took hold of him and rocked him. This is from four days ago. This interview is from four days ago. Do you really believe people can change? When the world gets quiet, 
And when we have the courage to be honest with ourselves, I believe we ask ourselves this same question. Do I really believe people can change? And Cornel West's response is priceless. Oh, absolutely, he says. And then he preaches for the latter half of it. And you see how I hope the gospel has changed the way he looks upon the world with hope. You, you probably didn't catch it at the beginning because you weren't teed up for it yet, right? But he, he calls Anderson Cooper and our president and Mueller brothers, which I, which I think is his... Uh, it, it, you have to fight to do that with an enemy, friends. Even when he considers one of these people, the president of the United States, a, he calls them a foe. They're swinging at each other. You know what I mean? He, he uses that language. He, he refuses... He, he refuses to go so far as to say he's not made in the image of God and there's no hope for him. He actually says at one point, and you could tell, I mean, could you not tell how angry he is? I mean, he's, he's listing off things, like he's rattling off ways in which he's frustrated with institutions and with systems and particular things our current president represents. He's so frustrated with these things. And what I, what I find so fascinating about how the gospel has shaped his heart and his mind is that when he says, which is a huge claim, mind you, our president's a gangster, he says, I got a little gangster in me too. You really believe people can change? And I remember when that question came to surface in me really for the first time. When I started, it was right at this time when I had found this stuff out about my grandfather. I looked at this man whose evil ripped through my mother's life and rippled through so many families and communities that I know. Do I really believe people can change? But then, of course, I realize that there's a tougher question, really, and it's, do I believe I can? Do I believe I can change? Do I really believe that God could forgive me? Because if you trace the line of thought, I mean, this is like teeing up somebody for a sermon. Anderson Cooper says, so you're telling me that the sort of beginning of change is sort of acknowledging one's wretchedness? Like, I mean, how does he even pull out that word? And it, it's, it's a slightly thin version of things. So uh, Dr. West dodges a direct answer to that question and gets a bit broad with it. Do I really believe that God could come in and address these places in me that have a little gangster in them? Or much. These places of wretchedness. These places where I have ripped through people's lives. Where I have thought of myself over everybody else. Where I have come to believe that I don't think there's ever going to be change. Not substantive change. This is who I am. Friends, when the kingdom of God comes in the person and teachings of Jesus, and his actions too, goodness, his actions. Jesus' words and his, and his being and his actions, if you dig into them, they're all tied together. You can't separate one from the other. When, he, when, when the kingdom of God comes in Jesus, he comes bringing forgiveness of sins, and he brings it on his own authority. He doesn't point to some other God and say, that God can forgive you. He says, I forgive you. This kingdom comes with a hope and a promise that is so bold that it stirs up doubts and fears if we let it. And my prayer for you is that you let it stir up doubts and fears. That you have the courage to ask the question. I pray that you hear God tell you that in his son your sins are forgiven, and that he has the power to bring life to you with just a word. And, and, I, and I pray that you pray, God, can you really forgive me? And I hope you hear him say, oh, absolutely. Let's pray that now. Father, would you send your spirit to help us have the courage 
to look into the face of stuff that's so hard for us to see. Father, I, I, I think of how surprising that interview must have been for Anderson Cooper. For him to go off script, for him to be caught off guard, because this is a question he probably, well, he definitely hasn't ever really resolved. And I suspect that's true of most of us. Help us have the courage to go there, and I pray that you usher in evidences of your goodness. That with what we can taste and see about you and your kingdom, I hope that what we can taste and see is, is, is good, so that we might have the courage and the faith to believe that the stuff we can't taste and see is good too. Help us to believe in the midst of our unbelief as well.